Hello and welcome to Two Peas in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Miss Susie Hewitt, one of my ED colleagues, who's joined me in the lovely DNV isolation room to record this podcast. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Ian. Now, when I sort of approach people to come and talk, um, I sort of said, wouldn't you like to come and talk about this? Wouldn't you like to come and talk about that? Actually, you're the one person that came back and said, this is what I want to talk about. And the thing that you want to talk about is pain. Why do you want to talk about pain? This is something that's really very important to me. And from observation, I, I find it difficult, the different approach to, let's say, adults in pain, with fractures particularly, and the approach we sometimes take with children. So if you, Ian, uh, injured your leg while you were running and, and fractured your tibia, you would have an intravenous cannula as soon as you arrived in yep. the hospital and you'd have 10 milligrams of morphine and if that wasn't enough you'd have some more. My observation is that there are children who come with very obvious fractures. So what I'm thinking about is the the, four, the very displaced forearm fracture, yep. banana arm, or grossly swollen supracondylate, where frankly the cleaner could tell you that there was something wrong with that child. And yet somehow... We seem to be a little bit anxious or maybe start off offering paracetamol or yeah. ibuprofen, perhaps in homeopathic doses. What, why, is, why is that? What is it that's, that's influencing behaviour around intravenous access and analgesia in this patient group? Okay. Let's deal with intravenous access first. If you've got a broken arm on this side... Yeah. You've only got one opportunity for your venous access on the other side. Yep. I wonder whether that plays into people's anxieties. Of course, there's the morphine issue. Yes, and people think people worry Huge, a lot in kids. Hugely about that. So not only is it a drug that's not given that often, and perhaps confidence isn't very high, we've got to do a calculation, yep. like everything else. Yep. And it's in micrograms, 100 to 200 micrograms per kilogram. And then there's this real anxiety that I might somehow overdose the child Mm. and the child might come to some harm and they might stop breathing. And so all this time, nothing's happening to help this child with the pain. And the clinician's anxiety, Mm. whether it's at the front of their their head or at the back, is is, just causing delay. Mm. And so I want to try and unpick a little bit around um, why that is and also make some suggestions about how you can successfully take away a child's pain really quickly. Yeah, because, of course, the first thing is assessment. Yes. And are we good at assessing children's pain? Well, of course, there are lots of scales and visual analogue scores and linear things and smiley faces... However, I'm not entirely sure that in certain age groups, let's say around sort of five, six, seven, children, I think, find it really quite difficult to articulate what's happening. And if you were foolish enough to ask a child with a a grossly swollen and deformed arm, does that hurt? (laughs) you might be very surprised at the answer they give you. And they might say, 
Well, first of all, it's a stupid question to ask because yes. you're the doctor and even the cleaner knew it was broken and you know it's going to be incredibly painful. So why ask that question? But I've seen it happen so mm. many times. Does that hurt? And then the child says, no. And so that makes you feel a hell of a lot better because then you don't have to do any. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do any calculations or any intravenous access because a child says it doesn't hurt. Why do they say that? And this is all about magical thinking. Yeah. And that's why I picked the ages sort of five to seven, there or thereabouts. In that, this child has no life experience. Doesn't know quite what's going to happen next. Mm. Nothing like this has ever, ever happened to them before. They have maybe just started to go to school and the teacher asks them a question and they want to give the right answer. Mm. So the doctor asks the question, does that hurt? And the child thinks, what is the right answer mm. in this situation? So the child says, no. And then we go, we collude and uh, and go along. And the reason the child is saying no is they, they want to give the right answer. They don't know what's going to happen next. They've got a vague inkling that something bad might happen next. Yes. Like a needle. So they say no. And we collude. Mm. Or it's to do with the other aspect of ma magical thinking. I shouted at my mummy this morning because I was late getting up. Mm. And so this terrible thing has now been visited on me and it's all my fault. So I'll just say, no. What we mustn't do is, well, first of all, please don't ask that question mm. and then don't collude with children. Why don't you say, that must be really sore. I am going to take your pain away. Mm. And that's much better than, because the other one is, on a scale of one to ten, where ten is the worst pain you've ever had and one is no pain, where does it sit? I mean, that's... Well, they haven't had a life experience. No, exactly. They're and it's not a very helpful question either, is it? Because it's, it's going to hurt. And it, with a banana arm, whether they say three or seven, or they, they, they need pain relief. So what would your approach be to this child then, who's obviously in pain, who's obviously got a fractured arm? Well, first of all, I need to have everybody on board. Hmm. I need to have parents on board. And if I'm lucky enough, I'd like to have a play specialist with me because this whole thing is now going to be choreographed where my mission is to get this child from being pale and monosyllabic and hardly breathing to a child who's comfortable and chatty and much more confident in oh. their surroundings. And that needs, every, that needs everybody. It needs me, the child, mum and dad the the play specialist in terms of distraction and everybody's got a job to do the first thing is i don't really give the child much in the way of choice i know it hurts and so i make a statement that i can see they've got a broken arm that in my experience that's very uncomfortable and the deal is i'm going to take your pain away and i'd like to do that as soon as possible oh. I talk to them sometimes around, yeah, Calpol's very helpful medicine, but actually it's going to take a bit too long to work and I'd prefer to take your pain away within the next five to ten minutes. Yeah. So this is the deal, and I'll come back to the deal in a minute because you have to deliver on the, you yes. actually have to deliver on the deal. So I would say I'd like to give you a very strong painkiller and I'd like to give it directly into your vein and I would show them my veins yeah. 
directly into that vein. And to do that, and depending on the child, I sometimes say that will involve a sharp scratch, or sometimes I just get it out there and say, and that will involve a needle. Mm. <gasps> okay. Before the, <gasps> you say, but I've got a way of doing this. I've got a way of doing this that you will be too busy enjoying yourself that you might not even notice. No. And so this is where the distraction comes in, and I use an awful lot of entonox as well just to get the intravenous yep. cannula in. So it's essentially this is what's going to happen. There is no discussion in this, and there's no choice. Mm. Um, and that's that, that's the deal. Because we, we often get sort of drawn into this negotiating and prolonging, and that everybody just gets more and more wound up, and that's not helpful. That contributes to more distress for everybody. Because again, it's giving the child an impossible decision to make. Um, to my mind, it is my professional duty mm. to to take the pain away, um, and so I present it as this is what we'd normally do round here. Yeah. Just completely normalise it. This is what's going to happen, and the guarantee it's giving the guarantee that this pain will go away. Yeah. I mean, there are there are options. People say, "Well, Susie, what about um, intranasal dimorphine?" Yeah. It's a great tool in the box. Um, the, the pharmacodynamics, the pharmacokinetics are as good. So nose-brain circulation time is the same as arm-brain. It's great. What I find is in, in fractures, particularly in the old, <clears throat> older children, mm. I don't really think it quite completely gets on top of the pain okay. that's just that's from observation i find i find it particularly useful in the little ones with schools very yeah. much so but for a situation where i want to titrate against pain which we, which we should be doing yes you can't titrate intranasal against pain no. so I, I i tend not to reach for that in in a child who's got an obvious fracture the other thing is, well, what about oral morphine? Well, hmm. it's in the box, but my problem with that, if you have a very distressed child who's been crying, they'll have a, an element of, of uh, gastric distension anyway, because they've done a lot of air swallowing yeah. and they're crying. Then you give them a dose of oromorph, which then sits in their stomach with loads of air and it's not emptying properly because of the pain. Yep. So I have no control over the mm. absorption of that and I want to be in complete control of yep. this. So again, uh, apart from the very minor fractures, which we're not talking about here, we're talking about banana arm or displaced supracondylar, that's not in my, on my list of, of, of things. It's intravenous morphine or, or, or nothing yeah. else. And I'd agree with you. I think I, I've totally stopped because it just sits there in yeah. the stomach, and you just doing don't know nothing. where you, you just don't know where you are with it. Yeah. Whereas with intra, if with the intravenous uh, approach, not only do you deliver on your deal, mm. i.e., I will take your pain away, but then half an hour later, when that pain's starting to come back, you can give a, a, a small top up, mm. and you're ready for your anaesthetic. Yeah. You're all ready. You're packaged. And I think that that issue is really important. The reassessment. Because so the, the Arkham look at this and they've audited this I think last year, and I think globally what it showed is that you know we're not too bad at assessing pain and doing something about it in the first place. 
What we're not great at is going back and reassessing that pain and redocumenting. You know, have, have has what I've done made a difference? Do I need to do something else? And sometimes it's a yes. This is broken. I've given you something. You'll be fine. That's half the that's half the process, isn't it? It's it's the next bit is going back. And as you say, if I've got an IV in, I can top that up. And you're right. Um, we've we improved both in adult and paediatric practice around initial assessment and timeliness, I think. But the reassessment across the board is, is poor. One of the things we have tried, certainly in the adult department, is uh, the concept of give pain the red card. Okay. Yeah. And anybody who's had uh, intravenous morphine, etc., is given a red card as a visual reminder that this person has been in pain mm. and as a kind of a prompt mm. to, to go back. And this, this concept of give pain the red card, it, I think it's quite good. Um, footballing analogy, if you yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah, but that's quite a nice idea, isn't it? It's, it's, so it's not forgotten because mm. everyone's sort of concentrating on the broken arm and what we need to do and x-rays and orthopaedics and blah, blah, blah. Actually, they're still potentially in pain. So we need to sort of think about that. The other thing about pain, the other call we sometimes get is abdominal pain. So I have a child who's got severe abdominal pain. Um, I'm worried about appendicitis. And one of the questions I would ask is, okay, well, what pain relief have have the family given? What pain relief have you given? And less so, but we still occasionally get the... Well, I've given nothing because I don't want to mask symptoms. What are your thoughts? I know what my thoughts are on, but what are your thoughts on that? This is something that is somehow steeped in the public consciousness throughout my entire career. Um, So prior to emergency medicine, I did my basic training in surgery. So I have lots of experience of looking after abdominal pains and taking appendix out and things like that and so even even 30 years ago people were saying specifically about abdominal pain mm. i i won't give anything because i'm worried about masking the pain and i don't know where that's come from and it's one of the big myths that we mm. really really need to bust because first of all it's inhumane i don't know quite why you would withhold pain relief from anyone so it's inhumane. But actually, from an assessment point of view, in terms of making a good clinical assessment of that child, which involves looking at them on the, the trolley, seeing how comfortable they are to breathe, how they're moving around the trolley. These are all, all really, mm. really useful things. Um, how they walk around the department, etc., etc. But also, you've got to, at some point, lay your hand on that belly and make some sort of judgment around where the tendons, where it is, mm. and the magnitude of that tenderness. And that's just not possible if you have a child, or an adult for that matter, yeah. who's in significant pain. You actually can't make a good clinical assessment. So um, I, I, I don't know where it comes from. It persists. It's, it's still a strongly held belief. Mm. Um, and I, I, I challenge it. Yeah. But it's as you say, and, and it's interesting because with you just sort of saying that, it does seem to be abdominal pain. Yeah. We don't get it for headaches nope. or sore throats or arms, legs. It's abdomen. Mm. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's the great mystery of the abdomen. It is. <laughs> 
but you see, and it's not just healthcare professionals; it's parents as well, oh, isn't it? So. It's yeah. it is. You know, I want you to see how much pain they're in, which I, th- I find is very odd because if you were in pain, you would have pain relief. Why? Why? And it does seem to be children. It does seem to be children and younger children. I think, in my experience, that it's I need you to see how much pain they're in, and I don't know where that comes from, but it's something that we need to stop. I agree completely. <laughs> you know, you it, and I think the thing I'd say to to anybody is it, it makes your assessment so much easier when you're comfortable. If you've got appendicitis, you've got appendicitis. No amount of paracetamol, ibuprofen, or amorph is going to take that away. You've got appendicitis. Actually, I can assess you much easier if you're much more comfortable. And and that's the message. It actually helps your assessment to make a good clinical decision if you've got a, a well analgesed child. Um, you don't need to demonstrate to me you're in pain. Mm. I, I know you're in pain. Mm. Just to sort of round off, I think whilst we're talking about pain, codeine mm-hmm. has sort of been recently in the the, the sort of press of, mm-hmm. of concerns about codeine, mm. and and as I think there's an MHRA alert about codeine. I don't use codeine. Do you use much codeine in the in the ED or? Um, well, clearly we use it quite a lot in adult Adults, practice. Yeah. And until the uh, alert, I hadn't come across any problems in my personal or in colleagues' practice with respect to the use of codeine in the emergency department. Mm. My understanding is it's in a very specific group of patients that uh, that uh, had, had a problem yeah. that led to this blanket ban. Yes. Now, clearly... Uh, we need to take note and heed recommendations. My issue slightly is that you end up with a situation where previously you would have given codeine Mm. and now you're sending people home with bottles of Oromorph, Mm. which, as you know, are in child-resistant containers and the only people that can open child-resistant containers are children. children. So I have a slight worry as the move to an oral opiate solution as a as a TTO mm. um as a as a general rule if i'm looking after a child who actually weighs 50 kilos or is taller than me mm. then i am less con- less concerned than i feel i can justify and i understand that um the alert, uh, uh, the alert is in place However, there is some. Um, l- you can you've got a little bit of wiggle room in that a, a consultant can prescribe. Yeah. So you can use your your judgment, and I'm I'm comfortable with that. So in summary, I I, I hear the um, alert. Um, I'm I'm a little bit worried about Oromor for the TTO in the older child. I, I tend not to worry too, too much. Because because the thing that then followed it was suddenly oh you can't give coding to anybody it's which, banned which is not quite which is not true and yeah. it's not what was sort of the the purpose of it mm. um, I, so we, we have to be very clear on that another thing is if I go back then to the the building blocks the paracetamol and the ibuprofen as a, a very reasonable conversation you should have with all your children who are in pain is find out exactly how much parents are giving because if mm. they're going off the box yeah. With their with their quite wide range uh, age ranges, you may well find that by optimising their paracetamol and 
ibuprofen with weight-based doses, yes. sometimes you're able to double yeah. what's been given at, given at home. So I, I spend a lot of time actually finding out exactly what they're having, how frequently they're having it, mm. and then calculating a bespoke dose for that for that child. And that's really important in paediatrics, isn't it? Because so many things are based on weight. Mm. We spend all our time mm. calculating things. But actually at home, you know, it's based on, on the boxes. It's sort mm. of age, and children will have... Mm. very variable weights so you may be sub sub dosing mm. these patients so mm. it's really important and i think the other thing to say is that the, the big advantage the other thing that we've got in ed that parents haven't got at home that we should use as much as possible are our play specialists mm. that from, from my perspective worth their weight in gold mm. they have um one of our place specialists i say that she can speak child yeah she it's it, when you listen to her you think hmm that's an interesting way of talking, but she—I've decided she speaks child. <laughs> it's absolutely remarkable, and that can engage, and entertain, and distract, and get that whole focus and that and that mm. that, that that confidence that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And that's coming back to the team where everybody has a bit of a, a role a role to play yeah. to get the intravenous line in and to get the morphine in first time successfully and to deliver on your deal. Yeah, and distraction is key. Absolutely uh, a lot key. Of, you know, it makes such a big difference. But as you say, it's delivering on a deal because kids will not let you forget that. And, of course, if we don't deliver on the deal, next time they come in, mm. they ain't going to trust you. And this is also important. If you've had a bad experience with pain mm. and you're paying catch-up from a bad experience, it's an, I often see... If the kid has had a bad experience, then comes with a broken arm. This is a massive opportunity for me to get rid of all that from yeah. before and show them, show them evidence that this can be done. Okay, it's really important. And that's what we should be doing. Mm. Show them it can be done. Lovely, Susie. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Cheers.